0: And you may turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4-ish, 5-ish. I'm going to use John Stott as a little bit of an introduction. John Stott, I've got actually a lot of Anglicans in the PowerPoint slide this morning, or several. John Stott was certainly one of the good conservative Anglicans. He passed away in 2011, so this is over in England. Uh, wrote many books. The Cross of Christ is probably his most famous. I think he also did a a short biblical uh, doctrinal summary. But um, lots lots of good from John Stott. John Stott said this specifically about chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians. If you're using a pew Bible, that's 978. Chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians are stirring summons, are a stirring summons to the unity and purity of the church. But they are more than that. So it's more than just a summons to unity and purity. There's a larger context. And he summarizes it with three statements. Their theme is the integration of Christian experience, what we are, Christian theology, what we believe, and Christian ethics, how we behave. And then he goes on to explain that a little bit, that they can't be separated. It's easy to say, well, here's what I am. I'm a Christian. But if you're a Christian, it necessitates that you believe certain things that cannot be compromised. Now, we may have differences on, on secondary matters about what the Bible teaches, especially, or maybe one in particular, a good one example would be eschatology. What's still going to happen? How exactly is that going to play out that Christ comes back in power and glory? When does that happen? What does it look like? Who's involved? Uh, We've got some different eschatological schemes, different end-time schemes. That's okay. But there's other things that can't be compromised about the character and the nature and the person of God. One God in three persons. God reveals himself specifically in the person of his son. Truly God and truly man in one person who died on a cross, was buried, rose again, ascended to the Father. All those things, those are, if you're a Christian, if you call, if you say, that's what I am, there are things you must believe that make you a Christian, that are coincide with being a Christian. And then there's a certain way that you behave that's non-negotiable. If you're a Christian, you behave a certain way. Granted, I'm a work in progress, you're a work in progress. Granted, none of us are, have reached a state of sinless perfection. But we do behave a certain way. Our desire is to be more like Christ from day to day, year to year, as time goes on. The emphasis in chapter 4 and 5 is on Christian ethics. How we behave because we're Christians. How we behave because of what we believe. Now, some people look at all this about being a Christian and they think Christianity is a very repressive thing. It's a very stifling thing. It stifles who you are. So I would would say this is important, that Paul doesn't view what we call biblical Christianity as restrictive at all, as repressive at all, as stifling at all. Rather, he views this sequence, this experience in theology and ethics, as liberating and freeing, not stifling. You're set free in ways you could never be set free if you get to decide for yourself what is true. If you get to decide for yourself who you think you are and why you exist. We're set free when we uh, fall in line with God's plan and program as he's revealed himself. It's a relationship with God our creator through faith in Christ Jesus. It also includes God's prescription for all of life. Jesus talked about this, uh, what is eternal life? Eternal life isn't a ticket to go to a wonderful place where streets are gold and there's wonderful palaces. Jesus describes salvation. Maybe I should go back to Adam and Eve since that's in my slides. Adam and Eve were not set free and liberated when they disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. Uh, They are set free by faith in God's redemptive plan. And that redemptive plan was given in Galatians, or, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. So there is salvation for Adam and Eve, but when they disobeyed God, they weren't more free, they were less free. Freedom isn't found in your sinful expressions. Freedom is found in submitting to God's will and His character. Freedom is found in being in right relationship to Him, which is by faith in Christ. Jesus said this, In John 17 and verse 3, when he prayed, This is eternal life, that they may know you, speaking to the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That's what eternal life is it's a relationship with the living God, your Creator. It's a relationship with God who sent His Son, that we would have the forgiveness of sins. That's eternal life. A lot of people think of eternal life as a place, it's a person. It's a person. Jesus made that clear in the Gospels. And it includes God's prescription for all of life. It's not just a relationship. It also affects every aspect of life, which is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. He's talked about the relationship in the first three chapters. We have the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ, the redemption through through him but it also affects your life the way you think who you interact with how you interact with them psalm 119 is the longest ch- uh, chapter in the bible it's the longest psalm there's 176 verses with only a handful of exceptions all 176 verses extol all of god's prescription for life that we have because of the relationship, the prescription is is entitled, or they're talked about as being God's commandments, and God's statutes, and God's ordinances, and God's testimonies, and God's law. And the psalmist delights in all of those things. If you don't have a relationship with God, you could look at all those commandments and statutes and ordinances and and prescriptions, and you could say that sounds stifling, that sounds repressive. That sounds like you're not free, but in fact, that's what makes you free. It's described this way. If I pick out just a few of those verses in Psalm 119, verse 45 says, I will walk freely in a wide place because I seek your precepts. He has great confidence and assurance that he's walking in a wide, safe place because of God's commandments. It's when we don't have those commandments, when we don't have the guardrails, when we don't have the boundaries, that's where we fall into ditches and quagmires and mud. That's where we become like the pigs because we are not in a safe place. We're not free in those moments. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a el- for my feet and a light to my path, on my path. If I don't have God's word as a light, I'm in ditches. If I don't have God's uh, light, I'm not following the path that is safest, in which I will be most free and most satisfied. God made me, He knows what is best for me. One last verse, 130 says, The revelation of your words brings light. And gives understanding to the simple. All of that, speaking of God's rules, commandments, statutes, precepts, it makes us safe. I know there have been studies have been done and I didn't look them up. But I know they're out there. They're pretty easy to find. That children that have boundaries feel much safer than children that don't have any boundaries at all. So when children are raised, like you get to decide for yourself... Uh, whatever, I've got my own religion, I've got my own faith, but I would never impose that upon my own children, which in our culture is heralded as a very noble thing. But what, in some sense, a parent is saying is, I really have discovered nothing about life worth passing on to you. So you're on your own, just like I'm on your own, and to each his own. And let's see how it all pans out. When in fact... The boundaries are good. It's what makes you safe. It's what gives you confidence. And children thrive with those boundaries and rules. I don't mean that they don't push back against them. I've had children. And I've got grandchildren. So I know they push back against those boundaries. But those boundaries are safe. And those boundaries help to build up, not tear down. It's interesting that in light of those verses that speak about walking in a wide place, your word is a lamp, a light, uh, your, the revelation of your words brings light and gives understanding, have those resonate in your mind and remember what Jesus said. In chapter 8 and verse 12, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's said in the context of Psalm 119. Your word is a a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. Jesus says, I am the path. I am the light. That's either the height of arrogance, the height of arrogance that Jesus would liken himself to the very words of God, or in the beginning was the word. And the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is all in the context of Psalm 119 and it's a beautiful expression of what is safe and what is freeing. Jesus also said in chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's the safest place you can be in the Father's hand. And no man is able to pluck those that the Father has given me out of my Father's hand. It can't happen. That's the safest, best place to be. Jesus said in John chapter 8, if you, uh, to the crowd, there was a crowd there, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we, you, you will become free? That's kind of an ironic protest, because in some sense, they're under the, the authority of, and bondage of the Roman Empire. Uh, besides that, they've been enslaved through their Jewish history many, many times. But besides all of those physical material slaveries, they're enslaved to themselves and their own sin. The Bible likens our sinful choices to bondage, not freedom. And so they're enslaved to their own sin, and they're under a condemnation of death. So Jesus's response to them... Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Freedom comes by faith in Christ. Freedom comes out of a relationship with God who made us by trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior, as the one who can take away sin. Freedom comes in knowing that he's given us a prescription for life and we can walk in it and we can bear fruit even in our old age because we're in the safest place we could be. Bondage comes in deciding for yourself what is true. Bondage comes in deciding for yourself what ethics looks like and how you can treat people and what is justified and what is not justified. That's an expression of bondage, not freedom. So biblical Christianity is liberating and freeing a relationship with God our creator through faith in Christ Jesus, and it includes God's prescription for all of life. A couple quick little quotes. The first quote says, Christianity promises to make men free. It never promises to make them independent, written in 1918. God never intended us to be independent and not in need of who he is. Christianity is growing in dependence on who God is and recognizing it's yet not I, but through Christ in me. Anything that I accomplish that is to the glory of God, it's the grace of God and the power of God working in me to work what is pleasing to Himself. And then from a Roman Catholic, which I don't endorse Roman Catholic doctrine. Uh, and I don't even endorse this particular Roman Catholic, but he's got a really good quote, which is true. Fulton Sheen said in 1946, faith is not a dam which prevents the flow of the river of reason and thought. Faith is a levee which prevents unreason from flooding the countryside. We're not free if we all get to decide for ourselves what is true. that That's not freedom. Faith, Provides levies so that we can think in safe places. We can think with certain presuppositions which are necessarily true to ever arrive at right conclusions. I start with God is. I don't argue for God. I argue from God. God is. I start there. I don't argue for scripture. I argue from scripture. That makes me a presuppositionalist. Everybody presupposes something. You presuppose something to be true that you can't prove. God never intended us to prove his existence. He never intended the church to prove the, the inspiration of Scripture. It's demonstrated. All creation demonstrates that The origins of Scripture demonstrate it's of divine origin. But I don't need to prove it. I argue from that position. So, let's connect all this to Ephesians because it really does fit. This is the background for why Paul says what he does in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 4, Paul begins to emphasize a theme of turning away from behaviors associated with bondage and slavery and replacing them with behaviors associated with freedom and peace. A safe place. So What we've already seen up to this point, Paul has addressed sins of speaking falsehood, stealing... Corrupting talk, anger, bitterness, wrath, anger again, clamor and slander. That's all what he's dealt with to this point. Those are old behaviors that will enslave you and you will be in bondage to. And he replaces those because there's always this very important replacement theory. Christianity just doesn't teach, don't do those things. Christianity says, don't do those things because these are better things. These are the right things. This is a path of purity. This is a path of righteousness. This is the path God gives you so that you can walk in a wide, safe place. So he replaces, though, what replaces those bad behaviors with righteous behaviors. Where he will move next is in the realm of sexual ethics. And, uh, I will only assume that you are aware of the deplorable sexual ethics we have in our culture so that I don't have to describe things today. Uh, it's, it's in a deplorable state, and Christianity very much has something to say in that arena. So let's read chapter 4, verse 31, through chapter 5, and verse 14. I will read, and you can follow along in the version that you have. This is from the English Standard Version. Chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. "...be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children. And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints." Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who, is a, everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. All right, let's talk about this. Beginning with verse 3, sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The first word translated in this Bible, sexual immorality, is uh, the Greek word. It would look like pornea. We get our word pornography from that word. In American culture, uh, if you go in historically in the court system, they defined pornography a certain way. Uh, It's a certain type of deviant sexual immorality. In the Bible, it's a much broader term. Uh, Pornea, sexual immorality, is any relationships such as that that is outside of the bonds of one man and one woman in holy matrimony. In God's eyes, if it's not that, it's pornography, uh, which is much broader than what we like to think in our culture. God has given an expression uh, for that physical relationship, and there are bounds, and it started with Adam and Eve united in marriage in Genesis chapter 2. The second word, uh, idea, all impurity, kind of expands on that, which is the first one is already a pretty broad term. But now all impurity speaks of of deviant expressions uh, that are just improper because it's not within the confines of what God created in the beginning. So all those other expressions God considers impure. Uh, it may not involve anybody else, but it's impure. It's all that impurity, all what you may think, all that you may want to act out on because that you think that you know, that, that is who you are or that's what you're given to. He considers all of that impurity. And then the third word, covetousness, which almost sounds like it's uh, the one that doesn't belong. But in fact, it does belong because it's a it's a grouping of three and they all go together. And he's addressing sexual ethics in that verse. Covetousness is an unbridled, uncontrolled desire for what you want. And this is within the context of the first two words. Now, you can covet other things. You can covet uh, somebody's vehicle. You can covet somebody's house. You can covet somebody's lifestyle. But this is specifically in the arena that we're talking about. It's that kind of unbridled desire, that you want what you want, and you're controlled by that desire. So all those three are lumped together, and Paul says it must not even be named among you. Commentators take that one of two ways. Either not only should we not give ourselves to those things, we shouldn't even talk about those things. It's not even the right thing to be a topic of conversation. Other commentators, which I think are closer to the truth, are saying people on the outside world should never look at the church and associate pornea and impurity and unbridled desire with people in the church. That's not what the church should be recognized for, which, on one hand, I think is, should be pretty obvious. It shouldn't be rocket science. But on the other hand, if you go to, especially any sort of a big city, you've got churches that are parading sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. Because they can have flags up that are letting everybody know, this is what we're about. And we're legitimizing what God calls immoral. So it shouldn't even be named among you as is proper among saints. In other words, you're saints. You're not in darkness any longer. This is a... um, A theme Paul has hit on time and time again. You once were that. Granted, you used to be like that. But that's not who you are anymore. You're called to be saints. Set apart. Holy. Be holy as God is holy. That's not who you are. So don't ever act like that's who you are. Don't excuse it. Move away from it. And move to the safe place that God has provided. Now we go from that grouping of three in verse 3, to a second grouping of three more, which now addresses the same topic in terms of what you say. So in verse 4, it reads, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Verse 4, I think, defines basically American sitcom TV for the last 30 or 40 years, for the most part. And it's not just sitcom TV, but that's the good example. Because sitcom TV basically is all about filthiness and foolish talk and making light of what God has said is sacred and right. And they've perverted it into something that's a joke and that's laughed about and paraded and it ought not to be so. And that's what verse 4 is talking about. Warren Wearsby passed away in 2019. Warren Wearsby made this statement, which is um, can give you pause as you think about it, not just in the moment here, but pause as you go through your everyday life, uh, reflect on on his assessment. He says, two indications of a person's character are what makes him laugh and what makes him weep. They're not the only indications of a person's character, but they're two. What is it that you find humorous? What is it that you weep at? I think becoming a Christian increasingly means we... we laugh or we rejoice in the things that the psalmist rejoiced in. And we weep at the things a psalmist would weep at. Or we weep at the things that Jesus wept at, increasingly so. Filthiness is from a family of words that refers to things Shameful things of which a person ought to be ashamed. So when he says there should be no filthiness, he's talking about you should be ashamed to have even said that. It's amazing, you know, TV's the easy thing and I don't want to limit it to TV because you may not be a TV watcher. Our whole culture is filled with this kind of filthiness, things that we ought to be people ought to be ashamed of and instead it's talked about, and paraded as if it's normal, as if it's legitimate. And Paul says, not in the church. Not that kind of filthiness in the church. The second word, foolish talk, is this word, morologia. You think, in the beginning was the word, that's the logos, so that's the speech part. The first part of the word is where we get the word moron or moronic from. It's just stupid talk. It's just uh, talk without any boundaries, without any ethics. There's no filter on the mouth. It's unproductive, it's unhelpful, it's a fool's speech. And Paul says there should be no filthiness, that which is shameful. There should be no foolish talk. And then the third idea, that of crude joking. The origins of this word have to do with, quote, literally the root is good at turning. And originally the word had a positive connotation that meant keen wit. Uh, so the, the origins of the word, so far as I understand it, it meant somebody who was quick. I mean, they just, they were quick to be able to understand things or or, or put things in a, in a little quip, uh, summarize things. They were just a sharp individual. It was a good trait. But over time, and it was not a long amount of time, we're not talking centuries, but over time, what it meant was somebody could take, and I've worked with people like this back when I, I remember there was an individual I worked closely with. I was working at Red Lobster. He could take the most innocent sentence or conversation and turn it into something vulgar and crude. Double entendre all day long, which TV does that as well. Something that somebody says and somebody turns it into something dirty and it's a perverted joke and everybody laughs. And, there's, and Paul says, that's not what it should look like. Not only should, should the church not be given to those behaviors, the church shouldn't be given to that kind of humor. And that kind of speech, we should turn away from that. He says, they're out of place. It's just not fitting of who you are. If you're a saint, it just doesn't belong. There should be no room for that. Instead, let there be thanksgiving, which it's true. In fact, if you look at chapter 5 in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20 Paul says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches on several occasions that we can learn to give thanks because in, every, in everything or even for everything, because God is a good and loving God who provides what is most needed for every one of his children at the right appropriate moment. And we can learn to give thanks. And it's a work in progress. and It's not always easy. And I'm not always thankful But the Bible says we can learn to give thanks in all those situations, in all those circumstances. But in this case, the giving thanks really has less to do with verse 20, and it has more to do with giving thanks for the the sexual boundaries God has provided and the sexual gift that God has given back when he created Adam and Eve. He created them male and female and united them together so that they could be one. That's God's idea, not Adam's not Adam and Eve's. That was God's idea. And so there's a legitimate giving thanks for what God has given. So those are verses 3 and 4. What are your comments and questions? Cindy. If we're compromising the truth and the holiness and the righteousness of God in order to be relevant we've made a huge mistake and yeah i mean the church i would say speaking to Cindy's point the church i mean it's not just the church it's me it's easier to it's easier to find sin in out there that i see myself less given to or prone to rather than just upholding what god says is true even when the finger's pointing right directly at me that's true and the church historically has been much better about condemning the sin out there rather than dealing with the sin inside. In fact, Paul talks about that in Corinthians, I think it's chapter 6, where he talks about, what have I got to do with them outside? Like, why would you expect people that are, are sons of disobedience, that are sons of darkness, why would it surprise you that they live in their sin? But sin in the church, that's what Paul's most concerned about. There ought not be that kind of unrighteousness and impurity in the church, the uncleanness, the filthy talk. Uh, all all of those expressions and speeches that are not reflecting the gift that God gave. Somebody else? Carrie, and then Lori. We are not perfect people, but we are, be, we are to be people that are pursuing what is right. I mean, Paul's calling the church to not this, because it's not like when they got saved that automatically everything was fine. Like, they only made right choices now. They're only making good cho- He's calling them to that because it's a struggle. He's calling them to that because they have some bad habits uh, and they're being saved out of a lifestyle that was very dark. So he is calling them to that, and there is to be a difference. And if, if Christ is who they confess him to be, if he's in their life and in their heart, they will pursue that path. They will increasingly look like Christ, be shaped into the image of God's own dear son. But it's a process. We're not a perfect people, but we are people pursuing the right direction. Some, uh, Laurie. Yeah, well well said. I mean it's and that kind of this, this whole section was introduced at the end of verse uh you know thirty two, chapter four, verse thirty two. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We we appeal and make make appeals out of love because we've been loved. Uh we desire others to seek forgiveness because we've been forgiven. We celebrate This isn't what makes me a Christian, but this reminds me that I'm forgiven every day that I live my life. And out of that forgiveness, I I have to learn to extend forgiveness and love to other people and make appeals that they would find freedom in Christ. But freedom in Christ will come at the expense of death to self. And death is painful. Anybody else? Um, It would have been interesting to do the next two verses as well. They fit well, uh, but we'll do them next week, Lord willing. And you can think about them between now and then in the meantime. Let's everybody stand and be dismissed in prayer.